70 AD was a dark year for Israel. It had been 40 years since Jesus went to the cross in 30 AD, and the gospel message had begun to spread through the world. Tension had been high for some time in the city of Jerusalem. From 66 AD on, there was a a full-scale rebellion occurring in the city of David. Rome's forces had sieged the city. Their armies had gathered around the perimeter of Jerusalem, which was a fortified city on a hill, very difficult to take, easy to defend. And so Rome's forces were outside of the walls and battles waged off and on as the Israelite forces would come out and engage Rome's troops and then retreat back into the city of Jerusalem. The Jewish Christians had faced significant persecutions in the city of Jerusalem, so much so that they had withdrawn to a city called Prella, which is north and to the east of Jerusalem after several of their key leaders had been put to death in that city. James, the brother of John, one of the twelve disciples. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who led the church and was responsible for the verdict that came at the council of of Jerusalem in Acts 15. And then later on, Simeon, who succeeded him after his execution. Each of these three men had been put to death and under intense persecution, not just from the government of Rome, but also from the Jewish non-believers in Jerusalem, Those who followed Christ had withdrawn from the holy city of Jerusalem and had had gone to Prella. In 69 AD, a man named Vesperian takes the head of Rome. He becomes the Caesar. And he's very motivated to put an end to this drawn-out rebellion. So he appoints his own son, a man named Titus, to take over the army and assigns him to deal with this crisis situation. Titus campaigns first in Galilee which he takes fairly easily, and then moves on to Capernaum and secures for Rome. He marches through the Judean wilderness and then finds himself outside of the walls of Jerusalem. In an ironic twist, he follows the same route that Jesus' ministry takes, conquering one city after the next. And then he sieges the city of Jerusalem and joins the forces that are there. They begin to build large earthen mounds up to the tops of the large city walls that had fortified Jerusalem so that their soldiers might eventually breach the walls and take that very important place. According to historians from that period, when Titus finally did breach the walls of Jerusalem, he had no intentions of destroying the temple. He had spoken with his father, and Vesperian had agreed with him that the temple was too important of a monument to destroy and to desecrate. And so their goal was to defeat the Israelite troops, to subdue the rebellion, but to preserve that beautiful structure. Unfortunately, the troops who had been sieged outside of that city and had fought the stubborn soldiers there for years were angry at those Israelites to the degree that they ignored orders from their general and set fire to the temple once the walls were breached and the courtyard was entered. They could not get those flames under control, and much of the temple burned. Josephus records in his History of the Jews, Caesar ordered the whole city and the temple to be razed to the ground. All the rest of the wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot no grounds for believing that it had ever been inhabited. In our text today, Jesus is going to lift the veil of the future 
And he's going to foretell the destruction of the physical temple in Jerusalem that I just described to you. He's going to say, these are the things that will come. Much of what we study in the next couple of Sundays is going to hinge on being able to discern what portion of history Jesus is talking about. The destruction of the temple that was near at hand or the greater destruction of creation. The judgment of all that God has made that has been infected by sin. He's going to intermix portions of instruction concerning both of those cataclysmic events together. And so this morning I plan to show you how the destruction of the temple is a shadow of the greater judgment that will occur at the return of Jesus Christ. When all of creation will be judged and the sin that has so poisoned creation will finally be purged from it once and for all. This moment of judgment is a dreadful day for those who are still living in their sin. But those who trust in the name of the Lord have no reason to be terrified. In, in, instead, we must ready ourselves for the necessary trials that will lead up to the fulfillment of these important events which must take place. So as we join the text today, as we begin to read together, we are in roughly 30 AD. We're in Jerusalem. Jesus is in the courtyard of the temple and he is speaking with his disciples. There is a crowd about, so people are hearing this instruction. But what he's saying, he's saying specifically to those who have committed their lives to following after him. And so we begin reading in chapter 21, beginning with verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be here left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? So the conversation begins innocently enough. As Jesus is speaking with his disciples there in the courtyard of the temple, some of them looking around cannot help but reflect on the grandeur of this building which was representative of the grandeur of God and the presence of God amongst his chosen people. Some of those who are with him cannot help but point these things out to God and, and to make conversation about the beauty of this structure. There was a reason so many empires and armies had desired to take possession of this amazing structure over the centuries. And the land that it stood upon, which was so important to trade. Even in its third iteration, you see the temple had already been built and destroyed and built and then desecrated and built again. This is the third version of the temple, really, that we've got. And it is not anywhere near as beautiful and grandiose as the original temple that was built by Solomon at the apex of the Israelite culture. And yet still it glimmered with amazement. People who came to it were blown away by its size, by its scope, by the quality of its construction and the beauty of its decoration. It was a sight to behold in a jewel of culture. The Israelites loved their temple. It captivated their attention. It testified to the greatness of the God that they worshipped. It was a proud symbol of their identity. The building itself meant more to them, though, than it meant to Jesus. Jesus knew what they did not know, that this temple, this impressive building, would in a few decades be utterly destroyed by the Roman army. And he tells them as much there as they sit in the courtyard beholding its beauty. 
This time, folks, it's not metaphorical. In other areas, Jesus has said, tear down this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. And when he said that, people were confused because at first they didn't realize he was talking in that instance about his own body. That if they were to crucify him, if they were to put him to death, that in, in, in truth, God would raise him from the dead three days after his execution. But here we're not talking metaphorically at all. Now we're talking about true stone upon stone that will soon crumble and fall as God brings judgment on what is the holy city of David. Consider what the fall of the temple would mean for the Israelite people. This is no small thing to consider. Think about how huge the impact on America, the loss of the World Trade Center was on 9-11. How much it impacted our culture, how much it reverberated through the people of this nation and, and, and struck at the identity of who we are. And that was simply a business building. The temple represented their very character. It represented the dwelling place of their God. The holiest of holies was there. And the Jews believed that the very presence of God dwelled in the holiest of holies. They figured the city to be impenetrable and protected by God's sovereign hand. So for this temple to fall had huge impact, <clears throat> impact on the society of the Jews. <clears throat> they could no longer offer sacrifices to their God. Because scripture had made it abundantly clear in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that the only place where they could offer sacrifice was in the temple on the mount where David ruled. They had no capital. There was no longer a geographical center of this people who had been scattered and, and brought back together and now was being scattered once more. For those who resisted the ideas that Jesus was the chosen Messiah, for those Jews who did not believe, the destruction of the temple would also plainly put before them the fact that Jesus had prophesied and it had come true. Many who disbelieved would then have to reevaluate their assessment of this man who claimed to be from God. If he predicts the destruction of the temple and it happens, the unthinkable comes to pass, can they continue to, to disbelieve in this man? In light of the temple's importance, the twelve disciples asked Jesus for some details. When will the temple be destroyed? Say, Jesus, Rabbi, when, when will the temple be destroyed and how will we see that it's going to happen? What sign can you give to us so that we're not caught off guard by this? How will we know that the time is near? Verse 8, and he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. Jesus seems for a moment here to do what he's not bashful to do. He seems to put aside their question about Jerusalem's destruction for a moment. He's not ignoring their question about the destruction of Jerusalem. Rather, he's redirecting their attention to a bigger question, a question that they're not asking. They are concerned about the end of the temple, but Jesus teaches them that the destruction of Jerusalem will in many ways foreshadow a greater judgment, a greater destruction that is to come. 
the judgment of all creation that is set to occur when Jesus returns to this world. The Savior gives his disciples a three-part warning to help them be ready for the conditions that will lead up to this greater judgment. Now, when he gives these instructions, you might notice if you were to go back and study in the Greek, you'd see that they were given in a very distinct way. Each of these three destructions starts with the same Greek letter. They start with a, a pi, which is a P sound, and each of them ends with the same suffix. And so he says, first of all, don't be deceived, planethete, planethete, do not be deceived. See that you are not led astray by people who claim to know the way, but teach some kind of different doctrine than what I have given to you. He's helping them to understand that when the, the end draws near, that there will be no shortage of people claiming to be of God who have really nothing to do with God, who are in fact opposing God and bringing confusion rather than direction. So do not be deceived by these individuals. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you trust. Secondly, he says, don't follow after them. Poriuthete. He says, many will come in my name trying to draw you away from the mission I am soon going to be appointing you to. Do not be drawn astray and distracted. Do not think that they have secret wisdom or hidden answers that I have not revealed to you. Instead, remember what you have been taught. And then the third warning, don't be terrified. Do not be terrified. Even though the things that mark the coming judgment will be catastrophic, even though they will be unmatched by the things that you've experienced, more huge in scale, more devastating in effect, do not be terrified by these things that mark my return. Friends, it's very, very interesting how poignant this passage is to the world events we're experiencing right now. We have heard of recent hurricanes, haven't we? I understand there's one touching down even today, a class one hurricane. We have heard of earthquakes in Mexico. We've seen mass shootings and chaos and people behaving in exceedingly creatively wicked ways. All of these things have people wondering, is Jesus coming back now? Many with trembling in their voices, is this the end time? But we who trust in Jesus have no reason to be terrified, though these, these signs do indicate that we are in the last days, that there is a fast approaching judgment. We don't know how long that's going to take for Jesus to bring it, and we should not be too concerned with the details of when. We need to be concerned with the fact that we have no business being terrified about it. The God who brings that judgment is a God who has redeemed us. The judgment to come is vengeance upon sin. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, what has He done to the sin in you? He's crucified it. If you count Jesus as your Savior, if you see Him as your Lord and King, you have surrendered yourself to the holy reign of God in your life then though these cataclysmic events will mark a, a huge judgment that is coming upon the creation that God has made, you need not be terrified because there is nothing left in you to judge. Thanks to the work of Christ on the cross, it has been judged already. 
Even though we acknowledge and confess with heavy hearts that we still struggle against sin, each time we do, the, the, the Jesus that God has sent has defeated it already. We will not be condemned by the sin we are living in now that we are struggling against and trusting God to overcome because God has already paid that price in full. So the end days should not create in us the same response that it creates in the world that is lost and wandering. When we see these things unfold, we ought not be deceived. We have the truth. We ought not follow after false prophets. We have a Savior and a high priest that we follow. We ought to refuse to let the conditions of the fallen world and its corruption terrify us. But rather we should find sanctuary and solace in the God we know and trust. Verse 10, Jesus goes on to describe more about this huge judgment that is coming upon mankind. In verse 10 he says, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famine and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. Friends, these things must take place before the return of Jesus. So we should not be so surprised that they are occurring and that they have in fact been occurring since this prophecy was spoken out by Jesus. When you see earthquakes and famine in wars and tribulations, it is evidence that everything that must occur before the return of Jesus is in fact taking place. But we should not automatically assume that these struggles mean that Jesus is ushering in judgment by these things now. I'm sure those who experienced other great cataclysms through the ages since the cross have wondered, is this the time? When plague sweeps through Europe and thousands upon thousands die, is this the time when the Jews are persecuted in Nazi Germany and millions die in the Russian regime of communism? Is this the time? People have been asking that question for generations. We, however, should not be surprised that God is making come to pass everything that he said will come to pass. Verse 12 says, But before all this, <clears throat> they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. You see, friends, there are more specific things that God's church should be concerned about. Not that we should be unconcerned with earthquakes and tornadoes and things of this nature. Not that we should be unconcerned and ignorant to pestilence and famine or wicked rulers or the dastardly deeds of men. But there is something very specific that we should be focused on. Before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake, says Jesus. Verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Here the focus shifts. It shifts away from the impersonal natural disasters. It shifts away from the general confusion and chaos of the world events around us that will signal the approach of Jesus' return, and it shifts towards the personal persecution of those who believe in Jesus. Jesus warns you will be apprehended 
and put on trial. We see this example in the New Testament scriptures. Almost immediately after his death, we begin to see the church suffering forms of persecution. Jesus himself is brought to trial and must face the judgment of Antipas and Pilate. And then Peter, John, and Stephen are brought before the Sanhedrin and charged with, with, uh, with, uh, with rioting and, and stirring up the masses. And, and they're implored and, and challenged to not preach anymore. They are condemned and, and whipped. They are imprisoned. James, before Herod Agrippa, must speak of what he believes. Paul, before Galileo. And then again, before Felix. And then again, before Agrippa and Festus. Again and again, even in the earliest testimonies of the church, this prophecy is coming to life. And while many of us would see this as a condemning prophecy to those who believe, you know, look out, you will be apprehended, you will have to stand trial for loving me. That's not how Jesus describes verses 13. He doesn't describe it as a condemning prophecy. He tells his disciples that this is an opportunity. How many of you would count that as an opportunity? I really wish God would give me a chance to be arrested and to go before someone with more worldly power than myself so I might bear testimony to him and then face whatever consequences God deems necessary. Not many of us would think of this as a testimony, but Jesus tells his followers this will be an opportunity for them to give witness to his truth. When you follow after Christ, you embrace a path that is not easy. Much like someone who wants to go into the medical field and takes a Hippocratic oath, or someone who swears into public office, or signing up for a military service, you know that when you put your name on the dotted line, there will be consequences. There will be sacrifices you have to make to fulfill your commitment. Becoming a Christian and following after Christ means that you are now readying yourself to experience the kind of persecution that he first experienced and suffered on our behalf. The Greek word for opportunity there, martyrion. What does it sound like, friends? Martyr. Not only are we called to give witness verbally, to speak of the things that we believe, the things that have changed our lives, we are so called to be a witness with our very existence. And that encompasses perhaps even suffering for the cross of Christ. Suffering in the same patterns that Jesus suffered in for us. And so Jesus is very straightforward with his, his followers here. He predicts their peril, but he also prepares them for it. These persecutions that they must ready themselves for will not be for nothing. God intends to use them as a powerful testimony of their abiding in Jesus. Watch how this is going to play out. He gives them special instruction here in verse 14. He says, do not meditate beforehand how to answer. And that seems like a strange instruction, doesn't it? Don't think about the things that you will say when you're about to go to trial. Don't worry about it so much. And you have to ask yourself, does God want us not to think about our testimony? Does he want us to not run through our minds the things we might say if persecution or conviction comes upon us if we're questioned about our faith or, or asked to give insight into what we believe should we not think about that at all 
to be clear here, ignorance is not something that disciples are called to. He's not calling us to be dummies here. We're to seek wisdom and to know all that we can come to know about our God. Much of that doesn't happen apart from diligent study and preparation, right? But what Jesus is specifically telling them here, he's assuring them that God is the author of their testimonies. The very truth that they are bearing witness to is God's story that he is writing in their lives. And when they are put on trial by the world and by its powers, he assures them they will not stand alone. Christ is advocate and stands with them in spirit. God is not going to say, let's see how you do and just set us free to say whatever comes to our mind. But instead, as players in the history of God unfolding before man, God will use those opportunities to speak in powerful ways, to overcome our fears and our pain, to declare the goodness and the glory of God in ways that will magnify Him. And so these disciples, they need not have a perfect defense prepared. Instead, their focus ought to be to trust in Jesus, to provide for them. That's how they prepare, to expect that he will use them and direct them and know that in that very moment, the thing that they need to say will be given to them by the Lord himself. It's interesting, Mark and Matthew also uh, include a, a record of this account and what he teaches. In those passages, he says, the Spirit will give you what you need to say. Here in Luke's, it's more personal. Jesus says, I will tell you what to say. I will, Jesus, will provide you with your words. This promise does not appeal to the person who insists on being in control all the time. If that's a struggle that you contend with, take note. Jesus does not leave room for his disciples to be in control during their persecution. He tells them plainly, this is out of your hands. And if you're going to be a good testimony to me, you're going to have to let go and let me run the ship. There is no way you face these trials with dignity on your own power. In order for this to go the way it's supposed to go, you must abide in me. Have any of you had surgery? Raise your hand if you've ever had a surgery before. Something happened, something went wrong in your physiology. Maybe you got injured, or maybe you're sick, or maybe there's something exploratory that has to happen, and you've got to go under the knife. Tell me, how harrowing is that? I've never really had to have surgery, but I can imagine, especially if you're one of those kind of people that feels like they like to know what's going on, and they like to have their hands on things. I, I want to know exactly the schedule, and I want to be able to work hard to make it go the way I want it to go. I'm a leader. I don't like to be led. I want to lead. To have to step back and say, okay, put me under and do your work. How difficult that must be. You're going to be cut open by somebody who's essentially a stranger to you. You're going to have needles jammed into your veins, not knowing whether the procedure will work or not. You just have to let it happen. But for many, one of the biggest obstacles is trust. Not being able to be aware of what's going on and not to being able to affect its outcome. That's the hardest part of surgery for many. To have that lab-coated stranger do a, their best job in fixing you up. 
a job that you cannot do for yourself. And no, you can't just go on Google and learn how to have sur do surgery for yourself. You can't take care of this on your own. Pinterest is not going to save you in this one. The, the thing that you do not know how to do, somebody else knows how to do, and you've got to trust them to handle it. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying to us here. If you're going to testify of me, get used to not being in control the way you are used to being in control. Get used to the idea of letting me take you to places you would not walk on your own. Your call to bear testimony to Christ will be like that sometimes. And when it is, you have to trust that the Holy Spirit within you is supplying your needs. This is joy to the surrendered heart that loves and rejoices to call Christ their king. But this is terror to the person who cannot bear to let someone else lead them. Are you okay with Jesus being your Lord? It's the only way you can hope to testify when the world puts you on trial. Verse 14 and Verse 14's instruction says, Settle it, therefore, in your minds. In the original Greek, this actually means put it in your heart. Prepare yourselves for this. Get your mindset ready so that when the time comes for God to take control and use you, that you can rejoice in that instead of resisting the God who seeks to give you the power and the resources you need to overcome that trial. And so those who follow after Christ do not need to worry themselves with their performance. They simply need to worry themselves with trusting and abiding in Jesus. So when the time is right, they are happy to give him control. The one who is ready to testify is not the Christian who writes out and memorizes a grand speech. It is the Christian who stays daily connected to the true vine of Jesus Christ so that when the time comes, appropriate spiritual fruit will burst forth by the will of God. They will be used by Him to represent the eternal kingdom in ways they could not have hoped to accomplish by their greatest efforts. This would have been a comfort to those who were legitimately worried about their ability to testify about the honoring of, of Jesus Christ with clarity in the moments they might be put on trial. Just think about the magnitude of that task. These men, I think, realized in more real ways than we maybe can in peaceful America, relatively speaking, that they very well could be the next one to face trial, literally, for their lives. And so you can imagine the anxiety of, of wondering, will I be able to speak well about my Savior? Will I have the courage to stand firm and hold to the things that hold me up as a believer? Have you ever hesitated when God has given you an opportunity to testify? Maybe the Lord has opened up the door for you to share the gospel with somebody that you love or maybe even somebody you don't know, somebody who's a complete stranger and yet you know the magnitude of what is being asked of you. That you have been taught the truest thing about all of reality, the gospel. And now you are given a chance to share that, to speak it to somebody else and to do your very best to communicate those truths that have transformed you to somebody else who does not yet comprehend the things of God. Have you ever, ever had that opportunity and found yourself wringing your hands thinking, oh, I'm going to leave something important out. 
I'm not going to share the whole gospel. I'm going to share some abbreviated part and, and they're going to walk away thinking they know it and I'm going to have left something out. Or maybe you think, I'm going to say something that offends them so much that that door that God has opened will be slammed in my face and I'll never have a chance to say it again. Or maybe you've thought to yourself, I'll not be able to answer the questions that rise up. I'm going to tell them things that I'm confident about and then they're going to bring back questions I don't have the answers for and then my confidence is just going to dissolve. And I'm, going to, I'm just going to babble and, and stutter and I'm not going to be able to answer with clarity. Or maybe you've thought to yourself, I won't be able to quote the exact scripture I need. How can I show them that this is from the Lord God if I've not yet memorized that? I don't, I don't know where it's at in my scripture. Christian, you're not an apostle like Peter or Paul or John, but you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. One whose ability to do any kind of eternal good is dependent on your willingness to abide in Christ. It is not dependent on your ability to speak with flowery words or to enunciate beautifully academic words. Your ability to serve God rests simply in your willingness to abide in Him and to allow Him to be the strength and wisdom that you lack. You can also benefit from knowing that when God puts you into a situation, the Holy Spirit can use you despite your lack of preparation. So, so don't walk away from an open door because you just wish somebody more qualified would walk through and, and share the gospel better than you. When God has given you an opportunity, you tell them what you know. You share the gospel that you understand. You give them the evidence that you have seen clearly in your life and you let the Holy Spirit work with it. You let God do the rest of the work. Verse 15, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. In much the same way that the Pharisees and the scribes and the high priests could not contend with Jesus, even though they tried again and again and again, every time they came to confront Him and put Him down and make Him look like a fool, every time they did it, He simply was able to share with them more the power of God that rested within Him. In much the same way, when we stand before others and give testimony, the Lord God will be strength for us. He will overcome the weaknesses that we know are real in us. There's an example of this that I want to show you. If you want to turn in your scripture, this won't be on the screen, but if you would like to turn to Acts chapter 6, I want to share with you the ex a powerful example of a man who did just this. You know, the prophecy of the destruction of the temple was real, but this prophecy of his people being put on trial was also very real and is still in play today. In Acts chapter 6, verse 8, it says then Stephen, full of power, uh, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So what we have here is this man, Stephen. And he is ganged up upon by several different factions that consider themselves opponents to the cross of Jesus Christ. And they challenge him. They challenge what he believes. They challenge what he stands for. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. 
Does it sound familiar? Chapter 21, verse 15, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Acts 6, 11, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Who is this Stephen. He's not one of the twelve. He's not even someone so qualified as to be considered an elder. The only thing we really know about him up to this point is earlier in the chapter, the church had experienced difficulty not having enough faithful men to distribute to the widows who were in need. And the apostles, those who were set aside to preach the truth and spread the gospel, said, we can't be tangled up with this work, which is good work, but we're called for a specific role. We are here to pray for the church and to spread the gospel. We need men who can do this for us. And so the church gathered together and they appointed faithful men to be deacons. The deacon is a servant of the church. He's not a, a preacher. He's not one qualified necessarily to teach and to expound the good things of the gospel. He is one who is faithful to those truths and who is willing to apply himself to the edification of the church however he's needed. So this is Stephen, a deacon, barely mentioned in Scripture before this time. We do know that he was filled with the Spirit, though. We know that he was a faithful man. No seminary resume, no impressive skill set, simply filled with the Spirit and a faithful man. This man who was not even one of the elders of the early church responded to the charges that were set before him by recalling the way that God had worked through first Abraham and made a covenant with him, a man of faith that he had brought a growing nation from this man who had no offspring prior to God's intervention. And then he shared how the hand of God worked through Joseph, Abraham's offspring, a man who was sold into slavery, rejected by his own, and yet Joseph is then used through God's providence to take care of Abraham's offspring through the famine and to bring them to a safe place. He goes on to speak of Moses, a man who was forced to flee from his people and, uh, upon accusations of murder, but a man who God later would redeem and use to bring the captive nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt into the freedom of the wilderness. A pattern develops in Stephen's message. The one rejected by men, God uses for redemption. The one rejected by the nation of Israel is used by God to bring restoration and salvation. From generation to generation, this humble servant Stephen traces that thread of history. How Israel again and again rejected that very man whom God sent to redeem and sustain them. And in one final powerful indictment, Stephen boldly shows that this thread of rejection and rebellion has continued in the current generation of Israel to the extent that they have even rejected God's chosen Messiah, Jesus the Christ. 
verse 52 of, of chapter 7, I believe. Which of the prophets did your father not, did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. These were not just Stephen's words, friends. They are not the words of simply a humble deacon. They are the words of a man who abides in Christ and finds himself in a position where God is willing and able to use him for incredible good. And so gripped by the power of the Spirit, Stephen does what God calls him to do. Why? Because Stephen is ready for it. He's not trained for it. He doesn't have the skills for it. He's simply ready for it because he has said, God, here is my life. It isn't mine anymore. It's yours. Do whatever you want with it. He is a man who is ready. Jesus goes on to warn them that trial will not come only from the outside as it had from, for Stephen. Rather, it will come from those who are nearest to us as well. The risks for believers in the time leading up to the return of Jesus is more comprehensive than just nations and rulers persecuting us. Those who come to trust Jesus will find that many of those who are nearest to them who do not trust the same Jesus will begin to view them in radically different ways. Even people they would call brother, even people they would consider family will reject them because of their acceptance of Jesus. Look at Luke 21 again now, verses 16 through 19. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. Even the family relationships that are often considered our most significant ones will be ex exposed as in some ways superficial in those times of trial. The bonds we thought we had with some people will be seen to be shallow instead of deep when they turn upon us. Even in the earliest church, we saw evidence of this as believers were brought in and the first thing they would do to those, those believers would urge them to repent and recant and they would also get lists of people that they were related to so they could go into their family's homes and take them as well. If this were to happen to you, if your family were to turn on you, you'd be in good company. Do not forget that John 7 verse 5 indicated Jesus' own brothers did not believe he was the Messiah, at least at first. They questioned him and told him to go out and prove in the world that he really was this Messiah that he thought he was. And then we hear from the words of Jesus himself in Mark 6, 4, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. So Jesus experienced this rejection by those who were nearest to him. And church, in light of the judgment to come, we must ready ourselves for even that kind of rejection. Despite the threat of betrayal by such close loved ones, Verses 17 through 18 complete their preparation with an assurance that not a hair on their heads will be harmed. Now this must be viewed in a spiritual sense, right? Because to be sure, the hairs of many of these very disciples would be burned as they were martyred for the cause of Christ. 
But when he says that not even a hair of your head will be will perish, the word for perish there means utterly destroyed. It's talking about the essence of a thing being taken away forever. They will endure this in spirit. They will live on because of the gift of eternal life that has been given to them. And it says, by your endurance, you will secure life for yourself. Don't misunderstand that to mean that through some great work that they will, they will be able to, by their strength, hold on to this great gift. That same word, for endurance is used in another important passage in the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 8, verse 15. In the passage where Jesus shares a parable about different soils that may or may not bear fruit for the Lord God. And he says in verse 15, As for that seed that falls in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with Patience, the word for patience there is hypomone, which is the exact same word here that is given to these disciples who are told to endure patiently. Wait and let the Lord do what only the Lord can do, just as a branch waits for that vine that it is connected to to give it the nutrients it needs so that when the time is right and the season is at hand, the fruit will, bear, will be born in the way that it is intended to be born. So this is not a warning to those who don't have enough strength to hold on that they might lose their place in the kingdom. Rather, it is a reminder that fruitfulness will come only when we abide in that vine. And being surrendered to him, he will provide the strength to hold us near. At this point in the narrative, Jesus is going to shift attention again. So you might want to mark this out in your scriptures if that's helpful to you. At this particular point, Jesus goes back to the original question that those disciples had asked, when, Lord, will these events take place? Meaning the destruction of Jerusalem. And how will we know that the destruction of the temple is going to happen? These things will happen in the long term as a precursor to the final judgment. But in the meantime, there is this lesser judgment that is still significant to the people that's going to foreshadow that great final judgment. Verse 20, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that it is desolation that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of what? Vengeance. To fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Jesus does not provide a way for these men to accurately calculate just when this judgment will befall Jerusalem. Instead, he instructs them that when they witness the signs of war, beginning to escalate. When they see the armies gathering, and it, he's, in other words, he's saying it's going to be pretty obvious something is going drastically wrong. When you start to see this escalation take place, here's what I want you to do. Rather than coming to its defense, rather than rushing into the walls of the city and taking up arms to protect it, his followers should instead flee. They must come to terms with the fact that the hand of the Lord has ordained the destruction that is about to occur in Jerusalem. It is not some event that can be 
sidestepped. It is not something that can be remedied. The time is set. It will now happen. Though their instinct will be to protect that temple that they love so dearly, that represents the presence of God with them, to defend it with their very lives. He is telling them that this destruction is something that must happen and should happen. Verse 22, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. As devastating as it is to Abraham's descendants, the destruction of David's city and the temple is a right judgment. Like so many generations that had persecuted the prophets and put them to the sword, as Stephen preached about, this latest generation was presented with the very Son of God. And they had largely rejected Him. And it is for that reason that Jesus, when he entered into Jerusalem, he wept for his countrymen because he knew what he had not yet preached, that that temple would one day fall. And it would be a right judgment for the nation of Israel's rejection of the true gospel and the true Messiah. By rejecting the Son, Israel had rejected Yahweh himself, the Father who sent the Son. As God unfolds his history throughout the ages, friend, he has a way of giving us an impression of an important event and then sometime later giving us the actual manifestation of that event in a way that it speaks to the unchanging, consistent nature of God, that it testifies that he knows what he is doing and that all that he says will come to pass will indeed come to pass. As he has judged, so will he judge again. As he has redeemed, so will he redeemed again. We see this in examples such as Israel being freed from their slavery in Egypt. That was a magnificent work of God. But it also pointed forward boldly to a more magnificent work of God, whereby Jesus would, sit, would come, the Son of God, and take on flesh. And by dying on the cross in our place and paying the penalty of death for our sins, he would release us from the bondage of slavery when we put our trust and hope in him. Just as Jesus mentioned the sign of Jonah, Jonah preached to a wicked Gentile nation, Nineveh, and they heard of their sin and their hearts were softened and they turned and repented and they were spared destruction. So too will Jesus come and preach a gospel that will then by his disciples be brought to nations such as Nineveh, such as America, Gentile nations that revel in sin and yet when hearing the gospel, many will turn and repent and be saved. The sacrificial system of giving worship and honor to God through giving a sacrificed lamb or goat was a picture of the greatest sacrifice that would ever be given, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ which would put an end to the need for that system, which came to an end, by the way, at the destruction of the temple. So this major judgment, the crumbling of Jerusalem's walls, the desecration of that holy building and structure will set the tone and put our minds on a final judgment that will come when one day God will enter again through Christ into this world and will make this world pay for the wickedness that it is enacted against the Lord God, which it has embraced and celebrated instead of being ashamed of and rejecting. Friends, the world is beautiful in many regards, but it is not a right place. It is not what it is meant to be. The world that we live in is stained by sin. And we must not let ourselves love it too much. 
It falls short of what it was created to be. And one day, it will be destroyed. We have to be willing to let this place go. And that happens by abiding in Christ and putting our minds on the things that are eternal. In the meantime, we trust in Him. For there is still time to testify of His goodness and mercy before the sun returns and brings a complete judgment upon sin. The fall of the temple was devastating to the Jews, but it is only a foreshadowing of the greater judgment to come, though their hearts ached for their countrymen and for the loss of the temple which had stood so long as a symbol of God's connection to His people. There was yet reason for hope, and God was still intending to work in and through the people who chose to trust Him. There is still time. <clears throat> Our passage, interestingly, ends with this uh, detail concerning Jerusalem's destruction. It says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And that's an interesting turn of phrase. And many people <clears throat> take it to mean that it's almost like Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, who comes in and is allowed by God's mighty hand to destroy or subdue Israel and take it captive, but only for a time. And then Babylon itself is decimated by another empire. But there is, I think, a better way to look at that last statement in the scripture we just read. The time of the Gentiles is not just a time where the Gentiles get to have their party and then are destroyed, but rather it marks a change. It marks a time when more of those who are like Nineveh, who are lost and do not have the root of Israel to nourish them and direct them, will be preached the gospel, will see the truth of Jesus and his saving power, and then through the miraculous healing power of the cross, will be grafted in to the true vine, will become a part of what Israel has always been, a people of covenant unto God. And so the time of the Gentiles is now, a time for the, the gospel to spread beyond the ethnic boundaries of Jerusalem and into all whom God has ordained since the beginning of time to be his redeemed people. Friends, let us not be afraid. Let us not let our hearts be led astray. Let us not be deceived by the false prophets of the world, but instead let us boldly expect God's judgment to come. Let us not be so connected to this world that we fear that judgment but that we know it is necessary and important to the glory of God. But in the meantime, let us use our moments here before that day of judgment to preach the gospel boldly to all who might be Nineveh so that God can be glorified and those who are lost may be found.